Good morning. Uh, it's afternoon. It's twelve oh seven. Good afternoon. There we go. Uh, I'm in a I'm in a group text message with uh, some high school students, and one of them took a picture of something they had written in their communication arts class, and they sent it to the rest of the group, and it read the following. It said, "Be successful, and do your best." and be involved, and join clubs, and join sports, and get a job, and be a good friend, and get well-rested, and get a 4.0, and make good decisions, and don't party, and don't do drugs, and don't drink, but be social, but don't forget your family, and dress right, and talk right, and eat right, and exceed expectations, and don't stress, but get it all done, and be sure to go to bed early, but you can't. These are the pressures of high school, and this is the deadly cycle of expectation. Anybody want to go back? I'm just like, I just really want to go back to high school. Um, when I think about high school, and, and as a youth pastor, when I would talk to students, I would think about high school being this like awesome time where you built these great friendships and... Um, you had some incredible experiences that you'd remember for the rest of your life. But as I've gone on in being a youth pastor for, uh, for like seven years there before stepping into this role, I saw more and more that kids were exhausted by it, that those expectations were real and that it weighed on them. And that instead of being this time in, in their lives where they were becoming like an adult and figuring out who they were going to be going forward. Instead, it's just a, an endless list of do's and don'ts and things to check off and expectations to meet that feels overwhelming to them. I think at the same time that Christianity can feel very similar to people. That in my time as a pastor and working with students and working with families and adults that people have this understanding that you put your faith in Jesus and he saves you from your sin and the eternal ramifications of that are incredible, but that there are also, they hear people talk about these like temporal in the world benefits of the peace that comes with, with the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life and comfort and uh, a lack of anxiety and the ability to, to pray and have those met. And yet they can't like reconcile the list of expectations that they feel like also exists. That instead, oftentimes they feel guilty or shameful because they don't live up to what they think a Christian is supposed to be. And, and that list sounds a little bit like this. Don't cheat and don't lie and don't steal and don't look at that picture and be at church and don't be late and be sure all the kids are smiling when you get out of the car. And make sure you volunteer the right amount of time and put the right amount of money in the offering plate and use the right words and think the right thoughts and do the right things and be the perfect Christian. But you can't. And so instead of rejoicing in the eternal reality of what Christ has done on the cross, many Christians live their life in this cycle of shame and exhaustion from what they feel like are these expectations. And a lot of those are pulled out of the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we're going to be looking at over the next few months. My prayer for this series is not that we would pile on those expectations. It's not that we would heap up some sort of list of things we're supposed to do and, and behaviors that we're just supposed to get right all the time because we're Christian. That's not my hope. Instead, my hope is that we remember what we said last week, that the Sermon on the Mount isn't a law to be followed. It's a character to be developed. 
I think there's some freedom there. That instead of just being weighed down by all the do's and don'ts from the moment you put your faith in Christ on through the end, instead, what the Sermon on the Mount cuts to the core of, what Jesus always cuts to the core of, is the heart. Who are you? Who are you as a follower of Christ? Who are you as an individual? What does your character look like? What does your heart look like? And so that's where we we took this image of a mirror and said, if I hold that mirror up while reading the Sermon on the Mount, what does it show about who I am? Not what I do, but who I am. Because the reality is that our being, who we are, affects our doing, what we do. Our being affects our doing. Who we are affects what we do. And I hope that some of this series can maybe take the pressure off of the list of do's and don'ts and clear away some of the clutter so that we can focus on who we are as disciples, as followers of Jesus. And we're going to start that this morning in the Beatitudes. If you've got your Bible, you can flip that open. It's in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. What this passage does is that it gives one of the clearest depictions in all of scripture of what the heart of a follower of Jesus looks like. It's the foundational characteristics of a follower of Christ. And here's what we're going to see as we do this. We're going to see a picture of what Jesus wants his followers to look like. It's going to play itself out throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, but it's really going to display itself here in the Beatitudes. Before we dive all the way into that, I want to just lay a foundation. Here's the way we're going to approach all of these messages through this series. If you were to sit down, read the Beatitudes, start to finish, it would maybe take you 20 minutes. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's going to take us 18 weeks to work through all that Jesus says here. There are like 20 sections in the Sermon on the Mount, the way your Bible breaks them up. We're going to combine a couple of those, but it's going to take us 18 weeks. We started last week. We're going to end at the end of May. And here's the the filter we're going to apply. I think it's something that you can use even in just your own personal study of the Bible when you come to any passage of Scripture and ask yourself three questions. You ask yourself, what does it say? What does it mean? What should it look like? What does it say means that we've actually got to open the Bible and read it. And so on every one of these passages, we're going to read them word for word uh, right up here from the front. Anytime you sit down with the Bible to do a quiet time or or whatever, you've got to read and see what it says. But J.C. Ryle says reading the Bible can be quite profitless if we do so merely for the sake of being able to say we read the Bible. You've got to ask yourself the second question. What does it mean? That requires a little bit of effort. It may require like a a concordance to figure out what some of the words mean in the text. It may require uh, digging into the context a little bit of when that letter was written or what was this author talking about or what was the time period and those sorts of things. It may require that you have a conversation with a friend or a mentor or someone who's discipling you and maybe they've got a little more knowledge and they can offer you some insight into, okay, here's what it says. We read it. Now, what does that mean? The last question is, every bit is important. What should it look like? If the Bible is merely a collection of nice sayings, then it's ultimately powerless and profitless for us. But it's much more than that. It's the story of Christ and his work on the cross. It's the story of uh, humanity and their sinfulness and brokenness and God and his righteousness and holiness, which means that the Bible is far more than a collection of sayings. It's actually very transformative. It's the power of the gospel and the story of Christ. And so we've got to ask, what should it look like? And then we've got to hold the mirror up and say, 
gosh, do I look like that? And if not, are there areas in my life where I need to be leaning a little bit harder into the work of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life so that I can be transformed into that kind of person, into a devoted follower of Jesus Christ? The world needs this clear and compelling picture of who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and why Jesus matters. And we've got to be willing to take the Bible and and apply those questions so that we can genuinely ask ourselves, am I providing that picture to the world? If I'm going to be someone who builds devoted followers, who builds devoted followers, what is, what is this telling me that I should look like? Who should I be? What, what does Christ want my life to be? We're going to see that beginning here in the Beatitudes. Jesus, at the end of chapter 4, calls his disciples um, from their professions. They leave everything to follow him. He started to amass this crowd that's following him everywhere that he goes. And he decides right at the outset of his ministry that this is the right time to describe who a devoted follower of Christ is. And so he has the disciples come to him and the 12 are sitting right there and he begins to speak, but he understands that there's a crowd and they can hear. And so everybody's going to get this picture and he's going to lay this foundation of the character of a disciple of Christ. And what we're going to see is that the foundation of salvation is humility before the Lord. That is the foundation We're going to see it in the Beatitudes. So I'm going to read this. We've got to figure out what it says. Beginning in verse 5, I'll finish in verse 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What does that mean? What should it look like? We're going to get those two questions answered as we go through this. Just, you can just picture this as like a two-column thing. On the left, this would be the left for you. On the left is blessed are the fill-in-the-blank. On the right is the for they shall fill-in-the-blank. And so we're going to work our way down the left side of that column, and then at the end, we're going to touch on the right side. And really, what this boils down to is understanding each of these adjectives that Jesus uses to describe a follower of Christ. The first one is poor in spirit. When Melody and I had been uh, just gotten married, we lived in an apartment right across, like the opposite side of 152 from Maplewoods Community College. There's an apartment complex there. And we were really focused at the time on paying off school debt, uh, college loan debt that we had amassed. And so we had, we had broken down our budget to where whenever we got paid, we knew to the penny how much money we were going to have to spend to cover our bills. And then everything else went to the school loan. And so I don't, I don't know if we went out to eat one too many times or what happened, but this one particular month, we're coming to the end of the month and we're going to come up a little bit short. There's only $7 in the savings account. It's like a Tuesday or a Wednesday and we don't get paid until Thursday or Friday or something. Um, and so it's time to eat dinner. Normally not a huge deal, but this particular night we looked around the kitchen and there were two things. And, and this is not an exaggeration. There were two things only. There were a couple of frozen chicken breasts and about 
25 crumbs in the bottom of a Lay's potato chip bag. There were no spices in the house, not even salt. There were no sauces in the house. There was nothing. Our only option was to somehow pan fry the chicken. There was no oil either, so it got really interesting. Uh, and to create just like bland chicken for dinner. And the whole time, I kept, we're, we're talking about this, and Melody is trying to be creative. It was like a challenge for her. It was a frustration for me. We're trying to be creative about how we can make dinner happen. And all I'm thinking is, we could just get in the savings account. There's money in the savings account. Make a quick little shift over. Go to the store. Load up on all these wonderful foods and come back. But we had made this commitment that we weren't going to do that. We were not going to shift from savings to checking. That was something we laid out as a foundation when we started to attack this school loan debt. But I kept thinking, okay, then what would the other option be? We could just go to the store, $7 in the checking account. We could load up on all the really good foods, and we could, we could just go to the cash register, and the male or female, the man or woman that is standing there, they would tell us the total, and we could just put on our best puppy dog eyes and say, I'm sorry, but I don't have anything to give you, and all I got at home is chicken and chips. I have nothing to offer here. That's what it is to be poor in spirit. That you stand before the Lord and you understand that spiritually you are totally bankrupt before him. There is nothing that you can offer on your behalf. That in in response to just all that he is and his holiness and his spiritual perfection, you stand there null. You stand there totally void and you say, I have nothing to give you. I can't offer you anything on my own. That's what it is to be poor in spirit. You see, you can't be filled until you recognize that you're empty. You cannot be healed until you recognize that you're broken. You cannot be saved until you realize that you are lost. Ladies, I want to give you an illustration that I think will resonate with you deeply to your core. You're in the car. You're on some sort of road trip with your husband. You're a little ways into it, and you start to think to yourself, I'm not so sure he knows where he's going. But you don't say anything because you don't want to challenge his intelligence. You get a couple hours down the road, and you realize he has no clue where he's going, but he's also not stopping. And your frustration starts to rise because he's not ever going to stop and get this thing checked out. Well, now let me give you a, a peek into the, the head of a, a male. That would require walking up to someone you don't know and saying, I don't know where I am. And that is unacceptable for a man. We would rather just be lost for a little while and pretend we're not. Being poor in spirit is being willing to stand before the Lord and say, I am totally and utterly broken and lost and I can offer nothing on behalf of myself. I cannot give anything. I cannot do anything. I cannot say anything. I am poor in spirit. I'm spiritually bankrupt before you, God. This flies totally in the face of both the culture that Jesus was speaking to and the one that we live in today. When Jesus was speaking, he's interacting with this culture of religious leaders whose adherence to the law is their source of pride. I mean, they just keep everything that the Old Testament says. They do all the right stuff. They've added extra laws to make sure that they don't ever get close to breaking one of God's commands, and they hang their hat on that. That's not being poor in spirit. That's being proud. 
if you were to walk outside today and, and go stand you know, over by Target or something and just question people as they come out of Target, are you going to heaven? I think the vast majority of them would say yes. And then when you say why, they would start to offer a list of reasons. Well, I don't do such and such. I've never fill in the blank. I'm a pretty good person. I go to church every so often. I throw some money in the plate, whatever the case might be. That's not being spiritually poor. That's not being poor in spirit. Instead, that's being proud. That, hey, yeah, I think I'm going to heaven and here's what I have to offer. Poor in spirit says, Yes, I'm going to heaven, and the only reason is Jesus. That's it. I have nothing else. I cannot rely on anything else. I can truthfully and honestly sing the words, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah. To be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Christ, begins right there. It cannot start any other place than coming before him and realizing that you are spiritually bankrupt in his presence. I'm going to move faster through the rest of these. <clears throat> that one was important, though, and I wanted to take my time. The next one is, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The norm in our society today, in our world today, is actually to kind of trumpet our brokenness, to celebrate it, to parade it out in front of people. You know, not only did I rob the bank, but I did it without a mask, and look at all the money I got. Not only did I lie or, or cheat someone or hurt somebody, but look at what I got out of it in return, so it was worth it. If you, if you really need like an example of this, just carve out some time one afternoon and, and go sit somewhere on a college campus that's a high traffic area and listen to the conversations that happen around you. We tend to celebrate sinfulness in our culture. But Jesus says, no, a follower of mine mourns. A follower of mine is grieved over the reality of sin. You see, conviction comes before conversion. When you stand before the Lord and you realize that you've got nothing to offer, that you cannot give or say or do anything on your own behalf before him, then you're grieved over your sin because it's left you woefully short of his standard. A person who's been saved does not laugh at their own sin. They're grieved by it. A person who's been saved does not laugh about the sin of others. They are grieved by it. A person who has been saved mourns over the very reality that sin exists in the world at all. Next, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. When we hear the word meek, we typically think of weakness, but that's not what's being talked about here. Remember, there's this progression you realize you've got nothing to offer God. You're spiritually bankrupt before him. You're mourning over your sin because he is so holy and you are sinful and you're just dreadfully short of that standard. And the next is that you're meek, that in your guilt, you are silent before God. There's nothing you can say in your defense. When I was like 11 or 12, uh, my sister, who's three years older than me, we were playing catch out in the front yard and I don't know exactly what happened or the events that led up to it, but some argument started to take place and I pushed her to the ground. Sin number one. Then, as if that was not enough, as she's laying on the ground, kind of face down, I proceeded to jump on her back with both of my knees straight into the ground. Luckily for her, not so luckily for me, at that moment, my dad was also walking outside and witnessed that part take place. As he came over and my sister, who, who can't breathe at the time, um, is in quite a bit of pain. My dad's helping her up off the ground and he looks over at me and he says, what have you done? 
My 11-year-old brain was smart enough in that moment to know that speaking right now is not my best option. It's going to be better for me to just be silent. I'm guilty. I've been caught. There's no getting around it. I can't do anything about it. I should just stand here and hold my tongue. That is this kind of meekness before God, that you are spiritually bankrupt before him, that you're mourning over your sin in in contrast to his holiness, and that when in that moment you've got no defense for yourself, you're just going to stand there silent. That's what it is to be meek. At this point, I think it's worth holding up the mirror and saying, where am I? Have I ever come to a point in my life where I honestly realize that I am so totally spiritually bankrupt before the Lord, where my sin and the sin of others and just the reality of sin in the world grieves me because it falls so short of the holiness of who God is and that I don't offer myself any justification. I don't compare myself to other people. I'm better than that guy, so I must be okay. Or look at all the stuff she does, so I think I must be in, in a pretty good place. No, you just stand there silent. Have you ever come to that spot? If you haven't, I would gently but firmly challenge whether or not you've ever actually placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm asking you this morning to examine that, to look into the mirror and think about it. If you have been to that place in your own life, I want to ask you the next question. Are you continually in that state? That as a follower of Christ, you recognize that at all times. You don't ever graduate from it. You don't ever move on. You don't ever become bigger than your spiritual bankruptcy before the Lord. It's who you are at your core. You understand that you're broken. In verse 6, things kind of turn the corner. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled, satisfied. I've never been starving. We use that word a lot. We kind of toss that around. um, When in reality, it's been like four, four hours since you last ate. I've never been dehydrated to the point of you know, extreme danger, but I have been hungry and I have been thirsty. And I know what happens in my brain when I get to those points. When I get really hungry or I get really thirsty, it's like nothing else exists outside of me besides the desire to get food or to get water. And you become kind of frantic for it. Where am I going to find it? What's it going to be? Jesus says, a devoted follower of mine hungers and thirsts for righteousness. That in your spiritual bankruptcy, in your mourning over your sin, in your silence before God, you're just clamoring for nothing other than to be made righteous before him. And you will do anything to get your hands on it. At that point, Jesus says, you're a devoted follower of mine. When the Bible talks about righteousness, it's talking about perfect moral conformity to the character of God. The only place to find that is in Jesus. And at this moment, the the Beatitudes kind of hinge a little bit. That in our spiritual bankruptcy, in our mourning over sin, in our silence, in our guilt before the Lord, as we hunger and thirst and crave righteousness, we are satisfied. We get satisfied by the work of Jesus when we see that it is only him who can provide us with that kind of perfection morally before the Lord. This kind of person is a devoted follower of Jesus. And now look what starts to work itself out after that. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Notice it doesn't say blessed are those who do merciful things or blessed are those who, who have mercy. It said blessed are the merciful. It's who you are. 
If you've been shown the kind of grace and mercy that Christ offered on the cross, it makes your natural bent toward mercy. A disciple's natural bent is toward mercy because they have experienced mercy that so far surpasses anything that they could ever hope to see on this world, on this earth. Hear me say this a thousand times over the course of this series. This does not tell you to just be, to to do merciful stuff. It doesn't just tell you that, hey, when you see somebody who needs help, make sure you help them so you can kind of do some mercy. No, it says that a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Christ, is merciful. It's who they are. It's become a part of them. Because you realize that you are more broken than anyone is ever going to be before you. You realize that you are more bankrupt than anyone is going to be before you, that you are more in debt than anyone was ever going to be before you, that you could do nothing of your own, and then you were filled, and you were made righteous, and you were made clean in the sight of the Lord. And so because of that, you have turned and become merciful toward other people. It's who you are. It just spills out of you that you see people and, and their needs, and you, you're moved to action on their behalf. That's what Christ did for us. That he saw us in our sinfulness and brokenness and he was moved to act. He came into the world and lived a perfect life and died a death that we deserve because of mercy. The Bible says that God is love, not that he just does loving stuff, but that he is love. In the same way here, a follower of Jesus is merciful. It's who they are. You're bent toward mercy. The next one, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Notice here that Jesus just cuts right to the heart. He's not talking about behavior or intellect or or anything like that. He says the pure in heart. The devoted follower of Jesus has had their heart go from broken and sinful to pure and holy. It's been done on your behalf thanks to the work of Christ. When you put your faith in him, that change happens in you. Saved people are changed people. You've become a different person because of the work of Jesus. You still realize that you're bankrupt before God. You still mourn over your sin and the sin of others. You still offer no defense for yourself in the presence of God. You still hunger and thirst after righteousness, but you know that it comes from Jesus only and you've been made clean and now you're bent toward mercy and now your heart is holy thanks to the work of Jesus. The the next one, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus was the prince of peace. You are to be a peacemaker, not to just do peacemaking. I think this is where we struggle with the Great Commission. We hear the words of the Great Commission, go and make disciples, and we we put it on that list of exhausting expectations. Not only am I supposed to show up to church and make sure the kids are smiling and volunteer and give and spend some time studying the Bible, but I also got to go and make disciples. That becomes very different when you realize that you are to Be a peacemaker, that it is who you are at your core. I think of two verses. The first, if if you're jotting down notes, write this down. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20. Paul says that Christians have been given the ministry of reconciliation, that, that we now exist to reconcile sinful, broken people to a holy and righteous God. And that is who we are. It's what we do. We we view the world around us and we see the brokenness and we lead people to the one who can make them clean, to Christ, to the one who can make them righteous, to Jesus. The other verse is Romans 12, 18. And it says that, you know, you should make every effort to live at peace with everyone. That in your relationships with people, you're striving to be a peacemaker. That in uh, bringing people to the Lord, you're striving to bring peace. It's who you are. It's at your core. It's what you, it's, it's just becomes this, this person that you are. The last 
Beatitude, verses 10 to 12. Some people would split these into two. Um, I'm going to leave them clumped together as one. There, there's a, a segment of theologians who would do that as well. I don't have time to explain it, but if you want to ask about it after the service, I'd love to tell you why I'm keeping them together. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you. It becomes personal. That's a little bit of a change. It's no longer this abstract thing that's out here. No, this is about you now. If you've realized your spiritual bankruptcy, you've mourned over your sin, you've, uh, you've offered no defense for yourself, you're, you're hungry and thirsting for righteousness, you've been filled by Christ, praise the Lord, hallelujah, you're going to be persecuted. The reason is that you're going to stand out a little bit. It's because of the righteousness of Christ. It's because of who you are. You're different than the world around you. It's not something that you're trying to do. It's not something you're trying to muster up. It's just, that's just the person that you are now. You've been made holy and pure. You are merciful. You are a peacemaker. And that stands out in the world around us. And Jesus says you're going to be persecuted and that is a blessing. The reason it's a blessing is because you know the end. That you're going to spend eternity with God and that makes it possible to rejoice and to, and to be glad in the midst of persecution. He also says, if that's what's happening to you, then you're right in line with the prophets in the Old Testament. They were persecuted. Jesus was persecuted. The disciples were persecuted. It's bound to happen. But the end of all of that makes rejoicing in the midst of it possible. I want to run us down the the right side of this now. I guess the right side's over here for you. I want to run us down the right side. Hold up the mirror here and think about yourself. If you are truly poor in spirit, and you are truly mourning over your sin, and you're truly meek and silent in your guilt before God, if you're truly hungering, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, if you are merciful, you are pure in heart, you are a peacemaker, you better believe that the kingdom of heaven is yours. You better believe that you're going to be comforted thanks to the work of Christ. You had better believe that you're going to inherit the earth and reign with him one day when he returns. You better believe that you're going to be satisfied by Jesus. You better believe that you're going to always receive mercy. You better believe, hallelujah, that you're going to see God. You're going to rejoice in that moment. You had better believe that you're going to be called a son, a child of God. You had better believe that the kingdom of heaven is going to belong to you. But the foundation of that is humility before the Lord. It cannot start in any other place. It starts with just recognizing that we're spiritually bankrupt before the Lord. The foundation of salvation is humility before God. We're going to sing a verse, a couple verses from uh, that all I have is Christ. We don't sing the songs we do here because we just think they sound nice or uh, because Brian sings like an angel. We sing them because the words hold meaningful truth. A devoted follower of Jesus Christ who longs to just make disciples can truthfully and honestly say, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way that sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. We have nothing to offer him. Hallelujah, all we have is Christ. Let's sing.